Hey, it's Greg Brady. Welcome to the Toronto Today podcast for November the 16th on a Tuesday. We got a lot to get to, including some upheaval, and it's public upheaval at that, in the Conservative Party of Canada. A video that came down the pipe from a Saskatchewan senator has drawn a response from a prominent uh, Conservative MP, Michelle Rempel-Garner. You know exactly who she is out in Calgary. We'll talk to Dr. Zane Chagla about where COVID spread is coming from and why it's not necessary to be alarmed in the major cities in Toronto and why pushing back restrictions and bringing this back and that back in the major cities is not really going to change very much, to be perfectly honest. The data does not back that up. We'll talk to Anthony Fury from the Toronto Sun and much, much more Alex Boudelier in on that CPC controversy as well. It's all coming up on Toronto Today. Let me start here. I want to get to some audio I saw from MSNBC on masks and kids last night. Um, This is not a crusade of mine. I think crusades sometimes are things that are unrealistic and crusades are really look at me and crusades are something you might want for yourself. Um, But this is a little bit different. And uh, and I an, an epidemiologist I really admire was speaking last night on it. They put together a big four minute news package, talked to some pediatricians and epidemiologists about masks and kids. And and I want to go there. But let me start here. You know how sometimes in the uh, it, it could be in the workplace or something as simple as forgetting to put the recycling out. You realize, let me handle this internally. Let me do some internal dialogue in a family in a community, in a political party. And the Conservative Party of Canada is going to have a closed-door caucus meeting on Wednesday. That's tomorrow, the last time I checked. But yesterday, instead of saying, let's keep this under wraps, let's keep this kind of quiet, let's not stir up and, and kick the hornet's nest, Okay, let's not knock down the beehive with a hockey stick, that's there's something that'll happen at that point in time. I think a friend of mine did that when I was seven and uh, and he got stung and I didn't. And I thought that was really, you know, kismet, if you will. Yesterday, and you probably hadn't heard of her before yesterday, but that's OK. There's a conservative senator in Saskatchewan named Denise Batters. I don't know senators until they get into trouble. They have to go full on Mike Duffy or Pamela Wallen, unfortunately, two you know, two pretty great journalists in their day. But, uh, but rather disgraced members of the Canadian Senate. We could play a game today where you go up to anybody that you see, adults. I don't think it's a fair question for kids. They're dealing with enough these days with those masks and all that, by the way. Um, you could go to anybody and say, name five Canadian senators. They won't be able to do it. You, you can't. I can't. Okay. But Denise Batters is one that I could name. Why? She launched a petition yesterday calling on party members to support reviewing Aaron O'Toole's leadership. Now, this is going to be an internal battle, but that raises my question. Why go external? Why lay it out there? She made a well-produced video in front of a water fountain and snow. So, you know, it's snowing in Saskatchewan. It's November. It probably is. Lucky they don't have the Grey Cup this year. Um, And many people are going to back Aaron O'Toole thinking this is the last thing we need. Like, we feel like we, we were able to move things towards the middle. But several conservatives are going to speak out against Mr. O'Toole. This is a little more protracted scenario than it was in the 2019 federal election. You might remember that result. And Andrew Scheer, 
though making big gains and cutting down the Trudeau liberals to a minority government from a majority. The Trudeau uh, liberals lost 20 seats and had their voting percentage fall a good 6 to 7%. I think it was 6.7% in total, down to 33.1. Andrew Scheer and the Conservatives gained 26 seats. All that without really penetrating the red wall in the GTA and all without him you know, laying bare what he was getting criticized for, and that was his sort of social conservative principles. The liberals were able to push on him and say he could talk about abortion in the House of Commons again. We don't want to have that conversation, the liberals think. He could talk about same-sex marriage. Is he for it? Is he against it? Well, there's older video where he compared uh, people marrying of the same sex to the um, kind of scenario where you might marry an animal. Not great video to have. And that's in the House of Commons. It's not after four drinks at Applebee's. Not that that would be an excuse for, for saying that either way. And certainly not in the last 40 years when opinions on gay marriage have evolved. I would say that probably all of our grandparents would have been against gay marriage. They just might have been more vocal or less vocal than some of their brethren about it. But they were able to pin down the social conservative tag on Andrew Scheer. And it was one that he, he, just, he, he just couldn't take off. And even right after the election, which was October 21st of 2019, in that fun era that we call BC, before COVID. But in weeks afterwards, it took about two, as a matter of fact, for the conservatives to circle the wagons, get the pitchforks ready, and push Andrew Scheer off a cliff when it came to leading the Conservative Party of Canada. Okay, let's have another leader. And so they do. And Peter McKay's involved and Leslie Lewis involved and uh, the heretofore disgraced Derek Sloan involved. And uh, they end up choosing Aaron O'Toole, an Ontario MP, a former military man. And this is seen as a more kind of progressive push to the middle. And yet it's still not very middle, according to the rest of Canada. And Aaron O'Toole maintained the 119 seats. Not an easy thing to do. Uh, in COVID times, like people were a little scared. They liked that the Trudeau liberals, to some extent, took care of them financially. There's going to be a hell of a bill to pay someday. You know it and I know it. But Aaron O'Toole, it was, I don't think it was seen quite like Andrew Scheer, where people looked and said, this is a very winnable election. And I never bought, as you remember from listening in August, I never bought the concept that the poll numbers were going to hold for Aaron O'Toole. Why is that? Well, the Trudeau liberals, simply put, got going really in September and people started paying attention more to the issues in September. The people that were upset about the liberal government and that don't like Justin Trudeau. And listen, there's a laundry list of things that you can criticize Justin Trudeau for. OK, some of its image, some of it's practically what he's done. OK, and a lot of people did. A lot of people did weigh in. But the people that weren't terribly chuffed about, you know, pushing Trudeau out started answering phone calls, it seems like, in polls and responding on Internet polls and then eventually went to the polls in September. And they said, we like things the way it is. It's not great. We're kind of maybe we're holding our nose as we go in, but we're voting liberal. I mean, maybe that's the case. I know people in my own existence that did just that. You probably do also. But here's where it gets interesting. As I mentioned yesterday, Denise Batters puts this video together. Not going to play you all of it. Not even going to play you half of it. But it's 
honestly, it's set phasers on kill, not stun. Here's some of what she said about Aaron O'Toole. And believe me, it sounds as much personal as it is professional. Under Aaron O'Toole's leadership, the rift in our party is growing. He told us this is not your grandfather's conservative party and warned campaigning MPs they must agree 100% with his new direction, which constantly changes, or get out of caucus. As leader, Mr. O'Toole has watered down and even entirely reversed our policy positions without the input of party or caucus members. On carbon tax, on guns, on conscience rights, he flip-flopped on our policies within the same week, the same day, and even within the same sentence. He won the leadership claiming to be true blue, but ran an election campaign nearly indistinguishable from Trudeau's liberals. We can't afford more of the same. Aaron O'Toole lost this election by every measure. Our party lost half a million votes, claimed fewer seats and a lower popular vote than in 2019. We lost diverse seats and MPs in the GTA, Alberta, and in Vancouver suburbs. Mr. O'Toole's inability to communicate or connect with female voters left us with an even wider gender gap. Aaron O'Toole lost a trust election to Justin Trudeau, of all people. This campaign was not lost because of Mr. O'Toole's mistakes or inexperience. It was lost because of what Canadian voters perceive as his character flaw, that he is not trustworthy. Okay, and guess who celebrated that video the most yesterday? You guessed right. Justin Trudeau and the liberals. That's fresh meat to them. That's a big, juicy cheeseburger with all the fixings. You know how those things taste. And here's the problem. You got Denise Batters, a senator almost no one had heard of before yesterday. And her quote in that video, we can't afford to see our party ripped apart again. When we're divided, the liberals win. So don't make a video documenting how divided you are. Come out of your meeting. Say what you want internally. Throw some coffee mugs. Yell and scream. Point fingers. But you make the video, send it out to the free world, and you document how divided you are. And you show everyone that you have not decided and can't decide, more importantly, who you are. There's many that feel we got to get rid of the far-right social element of the conservative party. That's a good first step. That's what some say. And I think you know that's the only chance the conservatives ever have of forming a majority government in this country is selecting somebody who clicks a lot of boxes, but somebody that purges the social conservatives from the party. There's old time arguments, and I don't mean old because they're current and they keep going. I mean old and outdated arguments that aren't going to fly anymore. I mentioned two of them, abortion, same sex marriage. You, to quote MC Hammer, you can't touch those. That's not the name of the song, but I'm close enough. And O'Toole won't pretend that he's going to touch those things. And supposedly, that irks other people. I'm not buying the notion. I see some people writing in, the liberal press is playing this up, and they love it. Well, I, I don't care about it one way or the other. I'm just telling you, all it does is push people to support O'Toole. Denise Batters is looking for attention here. She got it. I just gave it to her. I led the six o'clock hour with it. But the reason you're getting that attention is because you're documenting how divided and dysfunctional you look. You are divided. You are dysfunctional. You can't decide who and what you are. And there's a far right and social conservative element that is just not going to play in this country. If you're watching politics south of the border thinking, 
I know that'll work. It doesn't. And if anything, the party that's divided on the uh, on the side of the United States is is the Democrats. Yeah, they snuck into office because the guy they were running against was a absolutely narcissistic maniac who doesn't have a proper IQ either. But at the same time, you look in this you look at this scenario here and say that's not the case. And Canada's never the United States. We tend to want you to play it up the middle a little bit more. Okay, don't do that thing where you, well, you know, do something and then tell you that it's raining. O'Toole doesn't go far enough for the lefties and goes far too far from the conservative roots for the right leaning conservatives. Ron writes in at text 289-975-1640. Well, you're going to have to pick a side eventually or the liberals will keep cleaning your clock in elections, even if they're minority governments and the NDP is never siding with you either. Okay. What happened when and much, much more coming before end of the hour. Your response to this, is this just going to absolutely cement Aaron O'Toole as conservative leader or when an unknown senator comes up, blasts him and says, we want to review. Is it bad news for Aaron O'Toole? I think he digs in a little deeper. I think he's got his supporters still in this party and they recognize you move too far to the right. You can't win in Canada. Are you crazy? In 2021? The liberals are seen as too right for some people in Canada. Very happy to have our next guest on, uh, one of our favorites, infectious diseases physician at St. Joe's Hamilton. Uh, and I think a fantastic voice plays it up the middle, gives you the straight goods on COVID. Dr. Zane Chagall, it's great to have you on. I know I have, uh, you, you know, our buddy uh, Chuck Rabardi on. He talks about <laughs> tennis and you're a Raptors fan. You couldn't have yeah. stayed up for that Portland game last night. You couldn't have been up till 1 a.m. watching that. No, when they make their West Coast trip, I think I, I have to turn off the Raptors, unfortunately. But the highlights, yeah, I mean, defense is an issue. Uh, the offense is there, but defense is an issue, and it's, it's getting to be a problem, obviously, to finish these games. Can Pascal Siakam be the best player on a really, really good team? It's a good question, isn't it? I like him. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there, there's a lot of pieces, and there's a lot of overlapping pieces here too, right? This isn't Pascal Siakam from two years ago when he was the leader. So it is. It's going to be strange, and uh, mm. you know, I, I don't know how how it's all going to fit. But you know, the one thing they need is defense right now, and and you know, a few games that could have been won that that got lost in the last five ten minutes. I, I, I saw you tweet this on the weekend, and it's uh, I, I'm so relieved uh, because sometimes when I think, I'm, am I going down the wrong track? We all try and you know give people the best info we can on COVID, and, and social media is a platform. And, and sometimes, yes, yeah, sometimes we, we get it wrong and we got to backpedal. But you laid out exactly what I was thinking and exactly what other epidemiologists were telling me. Some of the growth in Ontario, a good chunk of the growth, Dr. Chagla, it ain't coming from Toronto, and it ain't coming from Peel. It's not coming from Hamilton. These hotspots we had as we were just getting into vaccinations, they're not hotspots right now. They're smaller communities. Like the, the positivity rate chart you listed, we're popping huge numbers in Haldeman, Norfolk, Sudbury's been on fire for a couple of weeks. These seem to be Ontario's problems right now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we all have this reflexive instinct, right? In the last three waves, where did we see transmission? Well, it was Toronto, Peel, uh, York, and and Hamilton. Well, you know, it is a very different story now. It is, you know, this disease is finding itself into these communities. Um, You know, people are not getting tested, as we can see, when percent positivity starts going up. That's often a reflection that community testing is inadequate. There's a lot of disease out there that is not making it to the radar. There's lots of chains of transmission. 
Uh, and, you know, places like St. Thomas, for example, are now getting slammed with uh, admissions as compared to places like myself and, and Peel region where we're not seeing a ton of admissions really these days and, and, and you know, really reflects that regional difference. And, and unfortunately, this virus is finding itself in the communities that were shielded before from the fact that we're low-density communities with fairly minimal contacts. When everything's up and active, Delta is going to find its way into people that aren't vaccinated. And, you know, the reality of the situation is, is people just need to get vaccinated sooner rather than later. And exactly that. Uh, and, and and this spread, uh, Toronto, uh, Ryan Imgren, biostatistician, lists the case rates per 100,000 every day. And and again, this is data I wish sometimes I, I you know, maybe I, I, I get unpopular with other media sources outside of this building because I call them out. But I'm like, this is the stuff you got to lead with, not cases across the province. You need to give people detailed data. Toronto's uh, at 15 per 100,000 yesterday. Sudbury's at 115 uh, for 100,000. Um, Simcoe Muskoka is even four times the rate that Toronto is. What is your theory? Is it just is it lack of compliance with mandates? Is it people just saying I'm done with it? Let's all get together, whether we're vaccinated or not. How do you view it? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I think, you know, number one, you know, vaccine rates were, were you know, higher and particularly higher in the high contact, the highest risk communities in Toronto and Peel and York, simply because what happened in the third wave, like they, they were getting devastated. Uh, essential workers were getting, uh, you know, hospitalized left and right. And so, you know, there was a lot of fear in those communities, a lot of acceptance the vaccine, uh, you know, knowing that uh, everyone had a contact that had gotten sick with COVID. Um, you know, we, we can't discount there's a lot of natural immunity in Peel region as compared to, you know, uh, southwestern Ontario, um, you know, simply because, again, you know, there was just so much infection over three waves and, and it just never really stopped until the vaccine strategy kind of rolled out in Peel aggressively. Um, and, yeah, I mean, I think, again, there is a, a bit of complacency here. You know, people had thought their small communities were never being touched. They were safe. and. Mm-hmm. It, mobility is there, right? People are traveling all over this province every day. And so, you know, regional hotspots are simply, you know, again, more a reflection here of the virus finding its way into vulnerable, high contact, unvaccinated individuals, and unfortunately leading to healthcare demand in those areas. Yeah. And I, and I always say this, people who would follow you on social media or even listen to this show, they're trying to be informed. Um, and, and I think we would have a uh, I won't call it a like a subpopulation, but we would have a lot of people, you know, probably 30 for 40 percent of people don't read a paper, don't watch TV, don't listen to you, don't listen to me. And and it's tough to get the information. So the idea that there's more spread or that it can come and get you in, uh, if you will, in a smaller community, clearly that is that that's being the case to uh, to a great extent. I saw it in the summer west of London in uh, in Grand Bend. There were tons of people I'd talked to. And they'd say, well, I'm not vaccinated. I'm 23. It's it's cool right now. Well, well, maybe six months later, it's 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 not cool not to be vaccinated. And there's been some spread in those communities. Absolutely. I mean, again, the, the highest uh, percentage positivity in any postal code is Elmer, Ontario. Right. Like, you know, this is a community, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, about 30 minutes uh, uh, east of St. Thomas that. Really, you know, Southwestern Health Unit has not seen a ton of transmission. Well, you know, again, there's only a certain amount of time that's going to last. This virus is going to be with us and it's going to circulate into every community possible. You know, again, I I think we have to start getting off this Toronto-centric view. I know people are looking at 
the Scotiabank Centre, they're looking at the restaurants in Toronto and saying, you're not doing your part and these need to be closed. That's what transmission is coming from. But we have to use data to say, actually, no, it's, 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 it's again, it's a lot of indoor gatherings, it's a lot of personal gatherings, and it's a lot of unvaccinated communities. And it's a lot of not only uh, testing access, but apathy to testing because of, again, you know, the, the, the fact that people are, are tired and stigmatized by this virus. That was my that was my issue last week, Dr. Chagla, with with, you know, with, with Dr. Uni's messaging. And I know the good work he's done. I know what he's tried to do, and especially last spring. But when he's talking about, uh, you know, capacity limits in sports arenas and restaurants, I, I feel like he's pointing the finger at, at the GTA, pointing a finger at the larger communities. And again, just from cases, you know, and I know post vaccination, describing what a case is now is it is not the same as describing it last year. A case with a fully vaccinated uh, asymptomatic person doesn't carry the same concern or fear that it did a year ago at this time. Yeah. And again, you know, the, the, a year ago, in the, in the first wave, we had no data where things were coming from. You know, again, we've been contact tracing. We have regional data. So again, is there a need for something like a capacity limit in an isolated region like Algoma or Sudbury? Sure. I mean, I think that's very warranted considering the rates. But, you know, we don't want to go back to this regional system that we had last year where people could slip across regions, especially in southwestern Ontario, where it's relatively easy to drive back and forth. And again, like, you know, we have a viable solution in our hands. Like, Mm. you know, at the end of the day, we have... Uh, vaccines, we have therapeutics, we have lots of different ways to reduce healthcare capacity, you know, to again, go back and start saying, well, we have to close or have to severely limit X or Y. Yeah, I mean, if we're really in in a dire spot with healthcare, sure. Um, But, you know, again, the data is really not suggesting Toronto restaurants are the problem here. And and again, you know, with a vaccine mandate in place, it really is, you know, keeping these environments relatively safe. I only got a minute here, but I want to get your read on this. We, we, you know, I know people bristle sometimes when they hear the phrase natural immunity. So if we use the phrase acquired immunity mm-hmm. or infected immunity. You know, the concept of herd immunity dealt to kind of wipe that off the map. OK, fine. But does this tell you or suggest to you at all that the virus has passed through um, and impacted or not impacted a lot more of us in Toronto and Peel? Like you said, this is a hard virus to hide from in Toronto, Peel, Hamilton. Um, is there an element? with all our numbers and the good numbers that we've got that there's some degree of acquired immunity here yeah absolutely look you know again peel region at some points was 10 15 even 20 percent positivity in some areas clearly there was a lot of transmission ongoing that we didn't detect and the nice thing is you know on top of vaccine this hybrid immunity from natural immunity vaccine is probably the most potent immunity out there right now so Mm. Again, you probably have reinforced those communities quite well, especially amongst those people that were high risk of transmission in the first three waves. Hey, thank you for doing this, Dr. Chagla. I'm I'm such a fan of you uh, playing it straight with us and and our listeners. Thanks for coming on. No problem. All the best. That's uh, Dr. Zane Chagla joining us. Yeah, again, like I'm looking at Uni's comments from last week. Well, we've got to talk about maybe a reduction to 50 percent capacity in sports arenas. First of all, with an airborne virus. That does next to nothing like he's he's smarter than that. I don't get the comments. I know I dug in on him last week. I don't get it. I couldn't understand this for the life of me. What that's going to do to say, okay, let's have 10,000 people at a Raptors game instead of 18. I don't have a clue. Like someone smarter than me. And there are many people out there that are could probably explain it to me.
Um, it is chaos and an element of disorder as well in the ranks of the Conservative Party of Canada. We played you the comments from Denise Batters with a pre-prepared video. We played you the response on Facebook from Michelle Rempel-Garner, a prominent MP who's ticked off that Senator Denise Batters did what she did yesterday. It's all out there, though. It's all front and center, and these aren't internal party discussions. Joining us uh, to discuss, we're very happy to welcome him to the show. He's a national politics reporter uh, for Global News. You might remember uh, his previous lifetime with the Toronto Star. Alex Boudelier is our guest. It's great to have you on. I'm, I'm uh, a fan of your work, and welcome to, uh, welcome to our company. Thanks for be, uh, making, uh, making the time for, to come on our show. Gee, thanks for having me, Greg. That's very kind of you. How's it been, how's it been so far? Everybody treating you, treating you okay? You got your benefits up to up to speed and everything? Dental? Everything maybe, is good? Maybe we could take that offline. Uh, oh, I know. Listen, I... Uh, <laughs> do no, want... listen, every, everybody's everybody's been, been very welcoming, and I... I already knew the team in Ottawa, you know, worked alongside mm. them for many years. So it's it's been a been a great transition. You document that, uh, I'll read the tweet, Global News has learned that Denise Batter's petition is part of a multi-step campaign by MP senators and party activists to oust Aaron O'Toole. So this wasn't some spontaneous post. And again, there's a lot of, a lot of production value, a lot of preparation, clearly, that Miss Batters was organized and, and armed with, uh, with some, you know, aggression towards Aaron O'Toole in the video. Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that this has been sort of bubbling behind the scenes for, for some time. You know, we've reported and been reporting for the last few weeks that there is a anti-Aaron O'Toole faction within the Conservative caucus. Now, we don't, I don't, um, and I don't think anybody really does have a good sense of how big that faction is. Um, but certainly this is not just the, the actions of one rogue senator um, expressing her opinion, uh, you know, whether or not you believe that opinion to be valid. Um, this is part of, a, you know, a group within uh, the conservative movement and within the conservative caucus that wants to see, uh, you know, Aaron O'Toole step down after September's disappointing election loss. A lot of it, I think, has to do with, you know, how he presented himself in the, the conservative leadership just, you know, a, a short year ago as this, you know, red meat, true blue conservative. Um, and then, you know, I, th- I think it's fair to say, as you know, as observers have noted, that he really tacked towards the political center in the lead up to the 2021 election. So, you know, I, I think there's a fair bit of, you know, whiplash <laughs> among conservatives mm-hmm. um, just sort of plotting, you know, his course over the last year. And so I think that that's where a lot of this frustration is coming from. Now, I should say that there's also frustration on the other side. You don't see a whole lot of conservative MPs coming out and saying necessarily that, you know, they fully support Mr. O'Toole. But you do see a lot of conservative MPs coming out and saying, look, this is a distraction. We need to be focusing on the liberals. You know, you know, Canadians don't want to, you know, us airing our dirty laundry in public. They want us to get to work. So I think that there is a fair amount of frustration, uh, you know, on all sides within the conservative caucus right now. Yeah. And, and we played the uh, the video, as I mentioned, from Michelle Rempel Garner. And, and uh, she just like it's it hurt the disappointment in, in her tone, in her expression, in, in her in her facial expression is just so obvious. Um, this this was not the way that many of them wanted to go. And and, you know, and I know in in big companies and, and even in media corporations, you're just best to keep stuff internally. It's a lot easier to keep a handle on things and have proper debate about what direction to go. Um, and and when it's out there in the public like this, it just it's a lot of oxygen that that probably doesn't benefit the party right now. Yeah, I think I think both sides of this uh, particular debate would agree that this is not you know the best look for the party. You know, I think Canadians, you know, especially those Canadians who aren't paid to pay attention to this stuff like like you and I are. Mm-hmm. You know, are looking at this and saying, look, these guys can't even get their own house in order. You know, why would we trust them with, you know, the national economy or national defense or foreign affairs? 
Um, so, I, you know, I think that there is an acknowledgement on both sides that, you know, this is not where the party wants to be right now. I think for the anti-O'Toole faction, their response to that would be, well, you know, better to get this out of the way now when, you know, it looks like the Liberals have a fairly stable minority parliament that could last, you know, three years or, or even longer. Um, you know, get this out of the way now. Similar to, you know, what happened to Andrew Scheer after the 2019 election, mm-hmm. you know, it became very quick. It became very apparent very quickly that he did not have, you know, what he needed to to hang on. I'd say that the difference this time you know, is, you know, a lot of the pressure facing Andrew Scheer after 2019 was coming from outside of, of the Conservative Party caucus. You know, it was uh, Tory strategists and, you know, mostly from, you know, East, Eastern and Central Canada who didn't think Andrew Scheer had a shot to, to, to become prime minister. This time it's coming, you know, mostly from inside, um, you know, the caucus. And, you know, I should note that Ontario Tories have a lot on their plate right now with, with the provincial election coming up, right? So, you don't see the same kind of behind the scenes operatives sort of agitating to get O'Toole out as you saw with, with Mr. Shear. Instead, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. It just also, uh, Alex Boudelier, our guest, of course, from Global News, it, it, it just feels like this is politics in the 21st century. This is politics also in COVID times. It's not unlike, to be perfectly honest, though they control the house and they have the president right now, it's not unlike the Democrats in the United States. They can't figure out how far to the middle they need to pull, how far to the left. This was the constant debate. Who's the best candidate to beat Trump? And they decide to swing way, way, way to the middle to the chagrin of many with in the party. And, and there's obviously conservatives on our side of the border that, that want to swing more to the middle that don't even that, that don't think a minority, let alone a majority government's possible unless they're more a centrist government like Harper, like Mulroney. Yeah, I mean, I, I think for those who are sort of lined up against O'Toole, you know, their argument would be, yeah, we want to appeal to as many voters, especially in places like, you know, the, the suburbs of Toronto, the GTA, uh, the suburbs around Vancouver. You know, they want to appeal to those voters. But, you know, the Conservative Party, keep in mind, they're they're very committed to sort of core principles. Right. You know, they're 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 much more ideologically focused. And I don't mean that in a pejorative way, but Mm. they're much more committed to, you know, their philosophical sort of underpinnings than, say, the liberals, you know, who, you know, sort of reinvent the party sort of every generation. So, you know, I think the people who are lining up against O'Toole would say, yeah, we want to appeal to to voters just like Stephen Harper did. Um, but he did it, you know, in a way, both because he had, you know, so much power within the party, um, but he did it in such a way that they didn't feel they were sacrificing conservative principles in order to to essentially buy votes. So I think that that, that would be the counter argument from them. Um, you know, whether or not that's a fair assessment or not, you know, I'll leave, I'll leave it up to conservatives to, to sort this out. I'm just sort of watching from the sidelines, but but certainly that would be the sense. Is there, before you go, is there another step this week? Could there be a high-profile MP? I mean, the shadow cabinet was just announced, and, and I thought it was, and many people thought it was, kind of a home run. I thought he put the right people in the right places. Paul Liev back on uh, finance, for example. I thought that's his, that's his bread and butter. That's his meat and potatoes. Is there a move that's coming now that will be either a rejection of this, as, as Rempel Garner has done, or support from prominent MPs for this petition to move quicker? Yeah, the, the joke in conservative circles in Ottawa is that, you know, Pierre never really stopped being financed. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they just didn't tell him. He never changed his business card. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, no, they couldn't couldn't get him to pick up his phone. But um, <laughs> no, you know, I think, you know, based on what sources told me yesterday, I do think that you're going to see sort of a slow trickle of, you know, endorsements for this uh, party activists, potentially even MPs, um, you know, who, who could come out and support this. 
Um, you know, now that he's unveiled his shadow cabinet, he's really got no carrots left to give people, right? There's no, there's no, there's nothing he can sort of dangle to the malcontents um, mm-hmm. to get them on side. And, you know, conversely, he doesn't have a stick either because, you know, he ceded the, the power to remove people from caucus to caucus. So, so it's a very, very difficult line that Aaron has to walk right now. At, you know, at the same time, keep in mind that we reported that this is a, a three-month or a six-month plan. This is not um, going to happen necessarily in rapid succession. And this is a problem for Aaron O'Toole as well, because he now mm. has to be constantly looking over his shoulder to see, you know, what she was going to drop next. Alex, great pleasure having you on the show. Thanks so much for your insight. Great reporting on it uh, as well. I hope we get to talk again. Have a great Tuesday. Anytime. Thank you. Alex Boudelier joining us uh, from Global News. Okay, we played you that video earlier from uh, Michelle Rempel Garner last night. Again, <laughs> if, if it gets around, it's a Facebook video, so not everyone's going to see it. So we thought, let's play the audio of it. But she's, yeah, she's remarkably annoyed. She does that thing where you kind of shake your fists a little bit. You ball the ball both your fists up at the same time and you shake them. And uh, and I do that, you know, any parent realizes they do this probably eight times a day and don't realize they're doing it at the given time. But someone will, Mrs. Brady will remind you later. She's like, you know, you were shaking your fist at our son. And I'm like, yeah, I'd never use it. But uh, but walking away, shaking my fist. I mean, I don't you know, I don't want to be Homer Simpson grabbing him by the shirt. That's not a thing. Uh, but yeah, Repel Garner's response to the uh, the Denise Batters video is great. And Repel Garner makes the make the makes the point that Trudeau liberals are popping champagne corks like what a great day for justin trudeau this happens and he gets to he gets he's out in edmonton at the same time and gets a photo op with the canadian soccer team men's soccer in canada's never been bigger it's never been bigger and he's out in alberta to announce a child care deal with jason kenny and then he's he's you know giving fist bumps with alfonso davies what beats that canada mexico tonight by the way i'm sure our next our next guest will be watching he loves a good corner kick and throw in uh, anthony fury from the uh the toronto sun look it's not as boring as you probably think it is give it a chance seriously i know it'll be as interesting as watching your kid play can i sell it that like that <laughs> that, that is a great sell you know sign i I'm going to pay for that. People are going to be lining up around the block. Good sell, Greg. (laughs) So what do you make of this? I said earlier, like, you know, in a media organization like yours or mine or in a with a sports franchise, a big company, it's really best to keep these discussions internal. What Denise Batters did yesterday can't sit well with a lot of the with the Rempel Garners and the Polyevs, let alone Aaron O'Toole. I just don't think you do that if you're a an unknown senator from Saskatchewan. We, we you know we throw enough um, enough at the Senate to say what's the point of even having senators anyway. But she got a lot of attention. We played it on our show yesterday. Yeah, she certainly did get a lot of attention. And look, Greg, I think this is something that is being discussed. Uh, to a great deal behind closed doors. I think one thing that is forgotten in all this conversation is there is a mandatory leadership review in the Conservative Party, in other parties in this country, and in more and more parties really in, in politics in the Western world that says if your leader does not win the most recent election, they must face a leadership review. And I think that's healthy because it it really gets the politics out of the question. And one of the things that's odd right now is everybody's acting like, oh, no, O'Toole just, you know, shouldn't have to face a review. What Batters is really saying is she wants to have that review sooner. Uh, based on the, the, the articles, the Constitution of the Conservative Party, if my understanding of it is right, it has to be done uh, by a certain convention time. 
it probably wouldn't happen in 2021. It would happen in 2022. So mm-hmm. it buys Aaron O'Toole a lot of time. It kind of runs out the clock. And I think it could be that, I think it's definitely the case that if Trudeau calls an earlier snap election and, and there hasn't been a leadership review, Aaron O'Toole manages to dodge that. And he manages to stay in and do a second election. So he might be trying to run out the clock on that. The point that is being made by many conservatives and many analysts that, oh, Trudeau just loves this, seeing a conservative party in disarray. Well, you know what? Right now is the one time where who cares? When is there going to be an election? Is it going to be next week? Are they going to drop? Is the RIC going to drop next week? No, we've just had an election. So now is actually kind of the healthiest time to do all of this. I will say I'm, I'm pretty agnostic on the Aaron O'Toole leadership question. Uh, Stephen Harper lost his first time out. Everybody said, you got to get rid of the guy. Then he came back and he led for a decade from now. So Aaron O'Toole could just lose again, or he could become uh, one of our most enduring prime ministers in history. I think anything is really possible so I actually think the drama over the the, re, the drama and reaction to what Denise Batters is saying is is a bit much for me. Can can the case be made? And I feel like Rempel Garner's making this case, though, in that there's a lot they can dig in on, a lot of economic issues. Obviously, she's going to be very militant and aggressive about Alberta and the and the and the oil and gas industry, and it just ends up being a distraction. I mean, guys like you and I are talking about it right now, so it's it's a self fulfilling prophecy. Well, I, I think it is, but like I said, ultimately, because you have to have a leadership review at some point, you have to have the conversation at some point, and, and I should certainly hope that a party uh, as, as long-standing and, and, and sort of involved and organized as the Conservatives can walk and chew gum at the same time. Look, Greg, i got to tell you, you don't need a Statistics Canada report to tell people that you drive by the pumps, the price of gas yeah. is up. You go into the grocery store. I mean, I'm shocked. I'm doing the shopping. I'm like, what? This, you know, this yogurt used to be five forty nine a container. Now it's six forty nine kind of thing. This really just happened the past couple of months. And you go, well, wait a second. I'm doing this on 10, 20 uh, products. You're talking 20 bucks more. Oh, okay. Thankfully, I'm not someone who's just scraping by, but there are people who are like that. Wait, we're talking extra 150 bucks a month in groceries. Yowzers, what's going on? And we know that government policy has had distortionary effects on the economy and, and inflationary effects. Wow, why isn't this what we're talking about all the time? Why is Trudeau getting on a plane, going to some party in Glasgow where they're talking about making life more difficult for people? We need a global carbon tax. What a fanciful, out-of-touch thing uh, when when people are facing real issues on the ground right now. So, I I mean, I think that should be the stuff that's front and center hammered. I'll also say that Aaron O'Toole, though, uh, isn't particularly leading on that right now. Although part of that is probably because Justin Trudeau uh, won't resume parliament. He's put it on hold for a really long time. Anthony Fury is our guest from the uh, the Toronto Sun. Um, I have these. I, I don't know if there are arguments with parents, but we share them anecdotally about kids and masks. And I would make this point. I, I'll wear a mask as long as you need me to. I'll staple the damn thing to my face if it gets my kid who's 13 or my kid who's 15. It's not that's not how it works, but but some degree of normalcy. So I, I think it gets framed as well. There's a there's a grown man from a place of privilege complaining about wearing a mask. I'm not. This is about kids. And I'm just I'm fascinated by people thinking I had a discussion with uh, with someone last week who was like, well, my two year old puts it on to go to the grocery store and he asked for it and he likes it. And I'm like, the fact that those are his first words are problematic right. to me. I, I don't know how to even I feel like I'm talking to somebody from a different planet when they say that no i agree we've, we've normalized all of this because yeah i have a, a, a three and a half year old so obviously the pandemic has been the most 
uh, has been the majority of his life. And I think that's very problematic because we've sort of uh, normalized the idea that this is how human society functions. And it is. I'll tell you something, Greg. I am a grown man and I am complaining about me having to wear a mask. I'm also complaining about the kids having to wear a mask. One thing that's frustrating is we have the established data looking back at various jurisdictions, masks on, masks off, cases go up, cases go down, and so forth. I I think we can really make the argument right now that uh, let's make this voluntary soon. And there are jurisdictions that a family member just head to the UK for a couple of weeks. It's entirely voluntary. There's no mask mandate, but I was told you go to the grocery store and about half the people are wearing masks and they are older people, generally speaking. And, and you don't see masks on younger people. You don't see masks on anyone, say, you know, under 40, under 45 uh, whatever the age break is there. And there you go. They're making personal choice. Quebec has just dropped masking in high schools. I do believe it's only for vaccinated high school students, but it, it's at least good uh, to see all of that progress going ahead. Uh, the incoming mayor of New York City, uh, Eric Adams, who this is not uh, a left-right thing. He's a Democrat. He was actually marching in the streets a year ago saying, reopen the schools for our kids when they were in a previous lockdown. Now, incoming mayor, he's saying, I want to take the masks off the kids. I, I think it's great to move this towards optional. As you and I have said many times, optional just means, you know, you don't you're not going to be fined if you don't wear it. That's all this means. And in, in Quebec right now, you get to your desk. Uh, you have to wear a mask in a common area. Right. Walk into the bathroom, wear a mask. Walk into the cafeteria, wear it. No different than, say, our restaurant or gym policy. And even if we don't like it, at the minimum for kids, they get to their desk, the class starts, the masks come off. And again, we're playing games with this, this airborne virus if we think that the mask is doing anything when they sit down. And yet they're all eating lunch together, gathering in the hallways between classes, having phys ed class. They're doing all this stuff. So we're just playing games here and they haven't things haven't haven't gone to hell in a handbasket in Quebec. That's that's the minimum I'd ask is is let the kids get to their desk, get settled, take the mask off. That's all that, that, that that's a that's a small step on the way to sanity. You're so right about the gym thing. Every second day I go to my local oh. good life and I'm there. And Greg, I got to tell you, you know, nobody's wearing a mask because everybody's at the workout station and you're all sitting one bench apart from each other. And you're, you're doing the, the biggest exhalations indoors. One does, you know, the huffing and puffing as you're bench pressing or what have you. And, mm. and to your point, the sky hasn't fallen and that's, that's the way it's been. So a bunch of adults in this rather small basement space is where my good life happens to be. Come on. I mean, if we can do that, I think the great ones can have the masks off at the desk in Ontario. Last thing, when I uh, I mentioned the numbers yesterday on the show, in the States, the vaccination uptake for 5 to 11s is around 3%. Now, it, it's going to be a bit of a, a slow burn here. Um, I, I'm not for the mandates. I, I disagree with still Stephen Del Duca adamantly. I agree with the provincial conservatives here. I don't think you can tell parents, gun to the head, get your six-year-old vaccinated, or they don't get to come to grade one anymore. We can't do that. That. But are you surprised the number is that low in the United States, 3% after 16 days? No, I mean, they've had over a million kids who have gone in for it uh, so far, even just a week into it. And this is kind of uncharted territory. So one can almost say that they've had something of a su- successful rollout in the age category because people are lining up and, and, and they're heading towards it. And I do think there are more uh, question marks around uh, well, we, many pediatricians have been talking about the, the questions over will we see the concerns we saw in the 18 to 24 age brackets and so on with myocarditis. And the question is, we're just not sure right now because we know that the Pfizer trial only gave the vaccine to, to 1,500 young people. So what's going to happen uh, moving forward? And obviously, everybody hopes that uh, uh, 
uh, things are good in that age cohort and we don't see these the negative side effects. The dosage is only a third of the size uh, it is in adults. But I, I think a number of people and, and polling data shows mm-hmm. the Vegas Reed Institute polling data in Canada shows this, that a, 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 a sizable catchment of parents say, I just want to wait and see. Uh, yeah. 50% of parents say, yes, I want to I want to get my kid vaccinated soon in Canada. The other 50 are mixed uh, varying opinions. Got to leave it there. Thanks so much for the time. I appreciate it. Same to you. Thanks, Greg. Great conversation. Anthony Fury, Toronto. Ridefair and ridefair.ca launched a campaign, probably did this uh, close to a year ago, to ensure, as they describe it, ride hailing in Toronto operates in the public interest. So what happened last week? Well, Toronto City Council said they wanted to pause issuing new ride hailing driver's licenses until a mandatory driver training program is in place. Not that the roads of Toronto have become the Wild West, but... There's a lot of implications about safety here. Uh, joining me to discuss, and I'm happy he's uh, got the time to do that, is Thorben Vietz, co-founder of Ridefair TO. Thorben, thank you for making the time for coming on Toronto Today. I appreciate it. Thank you for having us, Greg. What are the what are the biggest issues right now? And I'm going to ask that because you get this uh, Ridefair TO gets up and going about 11 months ago in the heart of the pandemic. And I'm going to guess there's far more Uber, Lyft, uh, other other companies put drivers out there on the road that, uh, that that we just, you know, we don't have um, have have track of. We don't have qualifications for potentially. Yeah, what, what we is, uh, you know, what we are seeing um, during the pandemic in all kinds of other sectors, which is that um, demand has, uh, you know, really, really dropped. Um, and a lot of the drivers that we talk to, um, they plain and simply can't make a living um, because they don't get to pick up fares. Um, and at the same time, you know, you have an oversaturated market um, with plummeting demand. Um, you know, you, you ended up having a situation where the city of Toronto kept on issuing licenses to, um, um, you know, Uber, Lyft drivers without the mandatory training. So a lot of the drivers that we talked to were saying, like, what is happening here? Like, I can't pick up a fare. You know, I'm, I'm driving for hours and, and make a few bucks. Um, and here we have um, the city adding untrained drivers to the city streets, whereas we have like, you know, thousands of already trained drivers that can't make a living. And that seemed to be what what's happening in the pandemic. What did you make um, of the move that the city, you know, did uh, in terms of stopping to issue the licenses? Usually a city will say, hey, every license is is more money for us in the coffers. But they decided to do this in. Is this under the guise of public safety? Is this under the guise? And I'm not questioning the legitimacy of the reasoning for it. Is it about public safety or is it about what you say specifically? It's just that there's too much congestion. There's too many drivers and too many cars. No, I think here this was a very clear um, um, safety issue. And I think the almost unanimous council vote reflected that. I think um, there were, you know, only two councillors that voted against this motion to temporarily pause it. Um, and I think we, you could see that safety was something that is of concern to all the councillors. And, and, you know, you and I, we, we have seen a lot of um, traffic incidents and, and you know, um, pedestrian deaths and so on lately on city streets. Yeah. There are a lot of issues going on to make the streets safer. And, um, you know, if the city is trying, if the right hand tries to make the city safer and the left hand is, you know, adding untrained drivers on the city streets, something doesn't really square up here. So I think they made a, a, a you know, rightful decision here to temporarily pause it until the training program is in place and we can ensure that all the drivers that are going to transport human beings actually are mm-hmm. trained to do so. 
Thorben uh, Vitas, our guest on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, is Toronto comparable to other major cities? And can you, is there any demographic look that you would say, well, we're most like London, England. We're most like New York City. And there's a balance. There needs to be that, that balance of private taxi companies and obviously private individuals that work for these companies. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I think, um, you know, when you look at, at the New York City case, uh, what's happening is that the city of Toronto has about three times as many um, licensed um, Uber and Lyft drivers than New York City. And New York City has three times our population. Um, so, you know, it, it's, it's really out of balance when it comes to Toronto. And um, in, in New York City, um, uh, Uber and Lyft drivers were averaging about 700,000 rides a day. Um, mm. In Toronto, only 176,000 rides a day. It's pre-pandemic, which means that Uber and Lyft are a lot more efficient in markets than other markets, in particular New York City, um, a lot more efficient in, um, you know, providing a service um, with fewer drivers. And in Toronto, that's the case. What that means is that in Toronto, you see a lot of deadheading going on where people are driving um, without passengers waiting for a pickup um, and everything in the name of reducing pickup times. But at the uh, back end of this, uh, you know, the short pickup times are, are bought on um, increased uh, kilometers traveled, increased emissions, increased congestion. So I think uh, Uber and Lyft could operate a lot more efficiently um, in Toronto. Last thing for you, Uber didn't like uh, this decision, and that would make sense to me. They're a private company, and you would think same as the city with licenses, uh, that more more drivers out there equals more cut of a profit for them. Lyft was a little different in that Lyft says, you know, we put our drivers through the rigorous safety screenings that we're supposed to, and and we're all in on backing the city to make sure uh, public safety is is there. Are, are, you a little, are you a little surprised that the reaction is a little different from these two kind of giant companies? No, I'm, I'm not not really. Um, but I think uh, we also have to remember that city actually had proper training in place until 2016 when Uber um, began to operate in Toronto um, initially illegally. Uber was pushing very hard to get rid of the training requirements so it could put more drivers on city streets. Mm. Um, and this training requirement was only put in place, put back in place in 2019 after a deadly accident. Um, so for any company that operates in the city of Toronto to argue against training um, at this point in time, I think is, is, is not a wise um, PR move. So in, in many ways, um, what, what Lyft is saying is, is not necessarily different from what Uber is saying. They all say we are supportive of training, obviously. We're supportive of safety, obviously. Um, but then again, when it comes to actually looking at the city of Toronto lobbying records and talking to councillors, you see that they weren't pleased. They were arguing um, for a delay of the training and for a conti continuation of, of um, issuing licenses for the exact reason that you pointed out, because it's yeah. more drivers on the street and it means more money in their pockets. Yeah, it has to. Uh, Thorben uh, Vietz, uh, co-founder of RideFair TO. Great to have you on. Thanks very much for uh, your opinion, your clarification on, uh, on where RideFair stands. We'll chat again. Anytime. Thank you. Hey, thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. Great to have you in and really appreciate you downloading us. Please feel free to subscribe if you're not already. Share it if you haven't already and rate our podcast as well. That helps us figure out what to do better to make the listen 
wonderful for you. Have a great Tuesday. Go Canada tonight against Mexico. I'm sure we'll talk about that on the live show tomorrow on Wednesday on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.